Welcome to Vermont Edition. I'm Bob Kinzel. Congressman Peter Welch is calling on President Trump to outline the administration's policies to defeat ISIS and stabilize Syria. Welch says the president also has a responsibility to seek congressional approval before engaging in any additional military action in Syria. Should the United States consider sending additional ground troops to the region and will a plan to topple the government of Syrian President al-Assad hurt efforts to defeat ISIS? With us today to talk about this and many other issues is Congressman Peter Welch. Congressman, welcome back to Vermont Edition. Thank you. Congressman, let's start off with Syria. President Trump ordered airstrikes against military bases in Syria following what the president said was a deliberate effort by Syrian President al-Assad to use chemical weapons against his own people. Just to start off with, was President Trump right to take some military action following the use of those chemicals that caused the deaths of roughly 100 people in Syria, including many children? Well, I mean, there's two things. One, it was just another example, and a, a, a totally outrageous example, of the brutal uh, conduct of Bashar al-Assad. Uh, and this time it was chemical weapons that uh, violates the agreement that was reached with uh, Russia in Syria, and it violates international law. So there's a lot of sympathy for giving Assad whatever we can. But the fact is, in the context of Syria, of Syria that strike uh, on an airfield uh, that's now back in operation is one of about 8,000 strikes that have taken place in the past few years. We've been engaged in very significant uh, act military activities in Syria and Iraq uh, for many years now, all without the benefit of a congressional authorization for the use of military force. So uh, the real question here is what is the policy that uh, President Trump is going to pursue? And what is becoming clear is that contrary to what he talked about in the campaign about not having us get involved in these wars in the Mideast, he's escalated military engagement since, uh, since he has become president, both in Syria uh, and recently with the use of that uh, Moab bomb or the mother of all bombs uh, in Afghanistan. Do you think it should be go the goal of the United States to take steps to make certain that President al-Assad is removed from office, or is there a scenario where you think he should stay in office? I don't think our goal should be regime change. Uh, the, the, our goal should be to try to end the suffering of the Syrian people. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's awful hard to imagine how Bashar al-Assad could continue to be a leader of a peaceful Syria, given what he's done to his own people. But I do not believe it works for us uh, to pursue regime change when ultimately the people in that uh, country, just like in Libya and to, in, in Iraq, have to make some of those decisions. And we can be all in on uh, diplomacy, uh, on humanitarian assistance, uh, and with some congressional approval, perhaps even uh, giving some uh, other assistance. But regime change as a goal, I think, gets away from what the fundamental issue is in Syria, and that's the immense suffering of the Syrian people because of the ongoing conflict there. So what kind of military action would you support against Syria? 
Well, potentially uh, some – actually, in Syria, I'm really skeptical about the value of military action at all because it's such a cauldron of, of conflict. You've got ISIS. You've, uh, you've got al-Nusra, which is affiliated with al-Qaeda. You have the so-called moderate opposition, but the ability of us to identify who that moderate, moderate opposition uh, is, is, uh, is very, very difficult and has not been successful. So the military actions we've been taking – uh, can't be distinguished between whether we're going to uh, neatly attack ISIS or uh, do something that is in support of uh, the regime change components of the opposition in Syria. So there's been no articulation by the president of what that policy is that we're pursuing. And that's a tough question. We all know that. But getting deeper and deeper in on the military side and actually taking on the burden of saying we're going to replace Assad gets us right back to the Iraq scenario where, yes, we got rid of, uh, we got rid of Saddam. But they, we broke it. Then we had to stay in Iraq for years and years on this nation-building exercise. So just think about it. If you, have, you get rid of Assad right away, if that's the goal, uh, then obviously you could have sent the bomb to Damascus as opposed to that airfield. But then you have chaos because a lot of the folks who do support Assad do so not so much because they in any way approve of what he's doing, but they fear uh, ethnic cleansing uh, in the event uh, that the ISIS uh, uh, that ISIS takes over. So uh, that's what has been unleashed in that is the is the ethnic and tribal conflict that uh, has its roots in generations of, of uh, living in the Middle East. Congressman, there are some observers who think that if you remove Assad from office, it'll actually weaken efforts to defeat ISIS. Do you that agree? Could be I think that could – you know, I don't know. I, I trust some of uh, the, the military people on the ground. But what you have uh, in Syria is just the total breakdown uh, of civic life. Before uh, the conflict there, Syria actually lived with significant harmony between the Sunni and the Shia. And then with the vacuum that was created in Iraq and then the, the, the march of ISIS across Iraq and into Syria uh, and then the conflict just exploding in Syria, uh, you had the divisions that got worse and worse and worse. And there's been this brutal uh, reaction by, uh, by Assad uh, just torturing in, in any political dissidents and uh, using barrel bombs as well as nerve gas in this recent attack. And you have a lot of people in the Damascus area who have been aligned with Assad largely because uh, they fear what would happen if he loses. And Assad does have a military. He has a functioning military. That's the uh, element that uh, if it were gone, uh, we could see a situation like we saw in Baghdad after the Iraqi army was gone. Uh, there was a vacuum and there was chaos. And the American military had to stay there as referee for, for years. Let me ask you about North Korea, another hot spot. The Trump administration has concerns that North Korea is close to developing a system to launch a nuclear warhead. Should the United States take steps to ensure that that never happens? Well, we should take steps, uh, but we shouldn't do a preemptive strike. Uh, and I'll tell you why. I mean, the... There have been three nuclear tests since the most recent leader or missile tests since the most recent leader has taken over about five years ago. Any kind of military action that we take against North Korea puts in jeopardy about 28,000 troops who – our troops who are in South Korea 
There's about 228,000 of our citizens who are uh, in the Seoul area in South Korea. And of course, there's 10 million South Koreans. And uh, the military assessment is that North Korea has buried in mountains about 10,000 conventional uh, uh, artillery pieces that they could rain down on Seoul uh, as a retaliatory strike against any military action that we take. And I think what you're seeing with President Trump is he rightly is concerned about a nuclear weapon in North Korea. He's right to be concerned about that. But I think it would be a grave miscalculation to think that it's an easy call to take it out with a simple military strike without doing catastrophic damage to the people of South Korea, including uh, some American citizens and soldiers who are in South Korea. So I'd be very, very cautious. Well, how would you achieve that goal then? There's got to be diplomacy. I mean, the president gets that. He's talking with China. He's trying to make that agreement. Uh, he's trying to get their help. Uh, and and the, North Korea is such a rogue and isolated country that it's not as susceptible to the uh, the imposition of sanctions as was Iran and I think even to some extent Russia. But the, the, the diplomatic route I think is the only way to go and the one country that has some capacity to impose uh, sanctions that would have bite is China. And I think that's why you're seeing Secretary of State Tillerson and the president uh, talking to China about getting their assistance on North Korea. It's vital. Let's turn to Rob, who's calling from Burlington. First of all, thank you, Congressman Welch, for uh, being on the program today. And uh, one of my concerns, and uh, it's not something I advocate for, is Alzheimer's disease. My mom is suffering from early onset. And uh, I just see, moving forward, um, Alzheimer's disease funding to the National Institutes of Health um, as a, another positive, proactive step forward to find some common ground across the aisle, as it is the most expensive disease in America as we speak. And looking at projections in the future, if things stay the same, it's going to bankrupt both Medicare and Medicaid, especially here in the state of Vermont. So I just wanted to say uh, thank you and to put that on the radar. Well, uh, thank you, but I've got some bad news. Uh, the Trump budget would significantly cut uh, scientific research as well as many, many other domestic programs. I mean, what the Trump budget does is take 60 to $80 million out of the entire domestic spending program, and that's student loans, uh, it's national parks, uh, it's scientific research, and it adds that money uh, to the military budget. Uh, so that would have a huge impact on achieving the, the, the goal you described and I share. Uh, and in fact, that comes at a time when our spending on the domestic side is, uh, is where it was when Dwight D. Eisenhower was president. So this is a brutal budget that would have just a dramatic uh, impact on trying to achieve the goal that uh, all of us share. Congressman, it's been a couple of years since uh, Congress has approved a budget, hasn't it? Hasn't it just been a series of continuing resolutions? It has. So the basic responsibility of a legislative body is to pass a budget, and it's to make decisions. Do you need to spend more here and less there? Uh, where, what are the priorities? What are the needs the country has that we have to face? And you have to do that whether you're in Congress, whether you're in the State House in Montpelier, uh, whether you're on the local select board or school board. And Congress has not done its job. And the irony here, of course, is that uh, Speaker Ryan uh, was lashing out at the Democrats uh, when we were in the majority and promising uh, that they would do the hard work. And it is hard work, by the way. I'm with them there. 
uh, of passing budgets and setting priorities. And they punted on that. Uh, so Speaker Ryan has talked about this uh, forever and has not delivered. There's huge divisions within uh, uh, his caucus or his conference, as they call it. Uh, but it's the job of the Congress to pass a budget, not just go on autopilot, which is what we've been uh, on for a couple of years since the continuing resolution started. We got this email from Tatiana who writes, Mr. Trump's concern for beautiful Syrian babies strikes many as cynical, to say the least, given his previous plan to ban all Syrian refugees from this country indefinitely. Now, perhaps, is there an opportunity to push our country to take more Syrian refugees? And is there anything you can do to support the aim of bringing in more Syrian families? Well, I think that's a very good point, because uh, any of us who saw those images on TV uh, of those children uh, dying with sarin gas are, are absolutely appalled, just like we were when we saw that horrific image of that baby uh, who was on the who was washed up on the on the shores uh, of Lesbos. Uh, it's just heartbreaking, and you know, it, it, when you're president, you've got more authority and responsibility than to just react with a missile strike uh, on an airport. You've got the basic responsibility of putting together a policy, and that policy can include diplomacy. It might include some support uh, of others indirectly or even directly, if you want to present it that way, for military activity. But it's also got to include uh, alleviating the suffering of the innocent people uh, who have been the victims of ISIL, uh, who've been the victims of Assad, and who, when they flee at great peril to themselves, uh, need some sanctuary. And uh, any so I, I would hope uh, that Tatiana's point is something that President Trump takes to heart. The overall policy has to include everything and, that's, and not exclude uh, us doing our share. Uh, I am a sponsor of legislation to significantly increase the number of refugees that we would take. Uh, I had a chance to visit a few of the, Syri the two Syrian families that have been uh, accepted into Rutland. And, you know, I wish President Trump had a chance to be there with me because you meet these people, you hear their story, and you just are so impressed at what they've had to endure and endured. And then the strength of these parents who were motivated by nothing more uh, uh, complex than doing whatever it took to help their children. Let's turn to Bill, who's calling from Montpelier. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Congressman Welch, I was just wondering this uh, President Trump giving the military basically free reign to uh, bomb whoever they want. That's that's the way it's coming across to me. Is that legal uh, under our system of government? My understanding was that the Syrian attack is like an international war crime. Uh, my, there's two things. One, uh, if you're to be legal under international law, there has to be a UN resolution, and we don't have that. So the activities that were engaged in in Syria, uh, in contrast to Iraq, uh, are, are, are illegal under international law. Uh, number two, domestic, our law. I believe they are illegal. I believe that the Constitution very clearly said that if there's military action, if we go to war, and we're at war, 8,000 strikes in Syria, not just the uh, missile strike on the airport, uh, the, con the Congress has to declare war. And that means we have to have a debate and a vote. And uh, now that is what the Constitution says, but it's a muddled issue politically because in matter of practice, uh, Congress has not asserted its authority and responsibility. And 
it, it, President Trump is not the first person that's engaged in military hostilities without approval of Congress. So I put a significant amount of responsibility on us in Congress in our failure to take up a debate on an authorization for the use of military force. I'm co-sponsoring one. It's about it's not about using force. I, I I'd be very skeptical of it, but I think we have to debate it and vote yes or no. And our failure to do so uh, is just creating a vacuum. Congressman, were there times that President Obama took military action without congressional approval? Yes, uh, he did in Syria. I mean, he's many of these strikes that I mentioned were, were uh, authorized by uh, by President uh, Obama. And now, to his credit, the president did send to Congress an authorization for the use of military force. And he said that he believed uh, that whether he needed it or not, he didn't make a presidential concession, as presidents tend not to do, that it would strengthen his position as commander-in-chief if he had the authorization for limited use of force in Syria. And, uh, of course, that was not even put on the floor by uh, by Speaker Ryan. So the president acknowledged the role that Congress – President Obama acknowledged that role. And my hope is that President Trump will as well. Congressman, you had a meeting with President Trump several weeks ago to discuss ways to lower prescription drug costs. It's an issue that there's some agreement between the two of you? I tell you, I was impressed with President Trump's engagement in that issue. You know, he invited Elijah Cummings <clears throat> and me uh, to the uh, to the White House, uh, and we were there with Doctor uh, the the head of uh, Johns Hopkins and Secretary Price. No other staff. Uh, but when we walked in, and the president, I think, really quite admires uh, uh, Congressman Cummings uh, as one of the great leaders in Congress. Uh, the president began talking about incredible ripoff prices uh, that he thinks the pharmaceutical companies are charging the American people. And he totally gets it that the same drugs elsewhere uh, cost a lot less. And uh, he – it was like I was talking to Bernie Sanders. He said, you know, they, they are against drug importation, yet a lot of these companies manufacture their drugs abroad. And he thought it wouldn't be a big deal to make certain that there were safety standards so that if we could import safe prescriptions at a better price, that would be fine. And he was talking about that with a significant energy and significant knowledge. So I was, I was pleased at that. Uh, and I said uh, to President Trump, you know, you're going to face a wall of opposition on your side of the aisle. And I looked over at Tom Price, who I serve with and I was friendly with, and I said, for instance, Tom Price. And uh, the president looked at uh, Secretary Price and said to all of us, you know, a lot of this is because of the pharma contributions. And in fact, I think that's true. So my sense from that meeting was, A, the president really understands how the prices are ripoffs. Uh, in many cases, in uh, in number two, he understands that a lot of people who voted for him feel that this is an issue of great importance to them. So, on his, with respect to the president, whose support would absolutely be vital for us to have any success in taking affection, effective action, uh, he 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 was saying all the things and showing the knowledge that gives me some hope that we might ultimately be successful. We are going to have a lot of opposition, especially on the Republican side who have traditionally been against this. But I have noticed in my discussions with colleagues uh, that there's a good deal more openness uh, on some of my Republican colleagues, and I'm hopeful that Elijah and I can get some uh, co-sponsors. 
So tell us about your impressions of President Trump. Uh, did he act the way that you thought he would, or did you see a different side of him? Well, you know, I, I wasn't I, – I, I, how would I say this? He – it was – the office was empty. He was in there by himself. I mean it was very different. I, not that I've been to the White House many times, but I was there a few times with President Obama and also with President Bush. And it was a real formality to you going in and the door would open the president would greet you and uh, there would be a photographer to take an official picture. When we went with President uh, uh, Trump, he, it was very casual. He was the only person in the Oval Office. We didn't sit in those ceremonial chairs, you know, the couch. We, he sat behind the desk and we sat uh, in, in straight back chairs uh, on the other side of the desk. And it was very, very informal. He was extremely easy to talk to. And as I say, our topic was something that – uh, Elijah and I have been working on for for ten years, really. Uh, so what I saw was that the president was engaged in this. What was different too was not just the informality, but there was no staff there, and that's very unusual if you're dealing with you know it would be Governor Scott, let's say, or any executive. They would normally have uh, staff there to take notes of what the, the discussion was, and particularly of any. Uh, statements the president made so there could be a proper follow-through. So it's a different style uh, than than I've seen before. But on the topic that we were discussing, the president uh, was knowledgeable and energetic about it. Let's go to John in Stratford. So we got a problem here. We fully expect pre that President Trump will be the laws of our nation or there will be consequences. In Vermont, we now have a situation with illegal, undocumented dairy farm workers that allows for the exploitation of these workers and puts the farmers who do not engage in this illegal practice at a competitive disadvantage. There is a program for temporary migrant agricultural workers used on Vermont fruit and vegetable farms called H-2A. Right. Will you this session work across the aisle to try to tweak H the H-2A visa process to include temporary Migrant dairy farm worker, a temporary migrant dairy farm worker provision that would allow for a longer stay of, say, one or two years, but would still be a temporary worker program. Yes. I mean, I, I think we've got to have a temporary worker uh, uh, on the farms and, and picking our vegetables. We absolutely need them. Um, and they've got to have uh, protection so that they don't get exploited. Now, by the way, I've, I've been, I was just in Addison County and talking to farmers there. We had a roundtable, and I thought when I sat down with the farmers, they were going to be talking about the, the margin protection plan that gives them some uh, safety net financing or, or cash assistance when the price of milk goes way down and the, the margin protection program has not been working. Well, they didn't want to talk about that. They wanted to talk about how, how the Mexican uh, labor that they have um, is really living in great fear because of the policies now that appear to have a dragnet effect on on, on them. And I was very touched by them because, number one, uh, by the way, I, I think these farmers clearly are – they're paying fair wages uh, to the Mexican labor. So the exploitation issue is one that you're right to be sensitive about, but I really do think a lot of our farmers get it. But second, the focus of the farmers I was talking to was that these – uh, Mexican uh, immigrant labor uh, farmhands are really good people in almost part of their family. Uh, many of them have been here a while. They work hard. They do a really good job. They keep the barn incredibly clean. And at the end of the month, they send most of the money they make back to their families. 
And these farmers were just really upset that in the midst of these good people working hard, they have to be looking over their shoulder all of the time. So the kind of program you're talking about that puts us into the sunlight, um, I think really is important, and I appreciate you for bringing that up. Let's turn to Tracy in Newport. Interesting comment that you just made on the uh, H-2As. I'm very familiar with that program. Um, In my job... I'm with I'm with Customs. Mm-hmm. Um, we are in the process of having a brand new border built up in uh, the Northeast Kingdom, and very very uh, pleased with that. Very happy that we finally have one being built compared to the old one that is a 1965 model. Mm-hmm. We're trying to do trade and immigrational, you know, people coming to the country or welcoming them to the country with a uh, a building that is a 1965 building. Right. So thankfully we're going to have a, we're going to have a new one shortly. But I'd like to know if um how are the Democrats and the Republicans working together up in DC on our immigrational problems that we face in this country? Has there been some open communication up in DC or has it just been um pretty much negate? Has it been just uh stalled? It's it's been stalled. I hate to say. Uh, here's the the recent history of this. And first of all, thank you for your uh, for your hard work, because uh, your job is to enforce the law, and we're failing to change the law uh, to make that law sensible. But um, if you remember, there was a big push when President George Bush was president uh, for immigration reform, and eventually, uh, the Senate passed a bipartisan. Uh, immigration bill that would allow folks to uh, pay their fines, get square with the government, and stand in line uh, on a pathway to citizenship and have a status while they were doing through, going through all those legal obligations uh, where they wouldn't get deported. And uh, I supported that, and I uh, Republicans supported it. Uh, our, uh, Senator Leahy and I think Senator Sanders supported it. It came to the House and it just died. And since then, what's happened is that the whole issue of the wall, the politicization in the last campaign, uh, really, I think, has set us back. Uh, and it's been a focus on, uh, you know, the President Trump with his his rhetoric uh, talking about the rapists from Mexico, and I think really did set us back because uh, he kind of made this a huge political issue that worked for him in some ways. So it has stalled the discussion about immigration reform. And uh, it's really important uh, that we get back on track. And uh, it will take President Trump to change his position on this. Uh, You know, practical people, I just heard George Bush on the radio the other day. He says, look, you know, we we really can't do nothing. That's that's not an option because you've got all these people, including kids, who've been here for years and, in fact, are contributing to the economy and are law-abiding. and when we're talking about a pathway to citizenship, it's not amnesty. It's like if you're if you're uh, 20 miles over the speed limit or 10 miles over the speed limit, it's not like you get your you necessarily automatically have a right to a license. You got to pay your fine. If you don't pay your fine, uh, you lose your license. So you get square with the law when there's been an infraction. So. This has been highly politicized, and it's really to the detriment of the country. And I would be supportive of getting back on track with that Senate bill uh, that is stalled in the House. Let's turn to Tom in Manchester. Mr. Welch, I'm I'm a proud supporter of yours, although I'm not a Democrat. Uh, I'm an independent. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and my main thing I wanted to hear is, and I do very much appreciate your efforts to work across the aisle, but how can we get the Democratic Party to abandon the establishment and the corporate push? Because let's face it, a lot of the people in Congress, will, on, regardless of what, whatever aisle they sit on, uh, are being bossed around by by the money politics. The money in politics is brutal uh, and really damaging on both sides. But I'll tell you, I think uh, even though he's not officially a Democrat, Bernie Sanders has had a, a big uh, shakeup uh, impact on the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, he really connected in his campaign uh, with everyday voters who are just trying to make ends meet, uh, who believe uh, in diversity and that we're all equal under the law. Uh, that we ought to focus on rebuilding our own economy and giving folks a shot at getting in the middle, into the middle class. And you're just seeing a lot of uh, activism, I think, around the country that's been inspired by the success of Bernie's uh, message. Uh, so my hope is that there is some reform and some willingness to try to have stronger uh, support among everyday people rather than just from the corporations. Now, Bernie makes a point. We've got to get the big money out of politics. And, of course, his was an extraordinary campaign because it was powered by $27 contributions. But I think that message that you're talking about is being heard. Congressman, at the end of this month, Congress needs to pass another continuing budget bill to authorize spending levels for the rest of the fiscal year. And if an agreement can't be reached, it sounds like there might be a federal government shutdown. Do you think that's going to happen? I don't think it's going to happen because some of the saner uh, leaders in the Republican Party knows that it's just politically uh, crazy for them to do that. Tom Cole uh, from Oklahoma, senior uh, appropriator, wonderful man, Republican, he just points out to his colleagues, look, We've got the presidency, we've got the House, we've got the Senate, and we're going to shut down government because we can't pass a budget. So, you know, there's no answer to that, and they're the ones that are in control of it. And the real challenge is that the Freedom Caucus folks in the party always see the uh, use of government shutdown threat, and they're willing to do it, by the way, because they did do it on Obamacare. They see it as a leverage point where they can get a guarantee that Planned Parenthood, say, won't be funded or that they'll repeal Obamacare. Uh, and it's a reckless uh, approach and an irresponsible approach. In the past, Speaker Boehner, when he was threatened with that conduct, came over to the Democrats. And he worked with us, and we got enough Democratic votes and Republican votes to do our job and, 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 and avoid a shutdown. Paul Ryan's got to he's going to be tested because I think he's going to get confronted by the Freedom Caucus folks as he did on health care. And what Ryan did on health care is he let the Freedom Caucus call the shots, uh, and it was a collapse. Uh, and from my, from my perspective, it was good news that it was a collapse because that health care bill was really bad for Vermont and bad for the country. But that's an re- existential challenge on the Republican side. Who's going to be in charge? Ideally, you'll have Speaker Ryan realize that if he wants to get significant things done – it's better to work with some Democrats rather than give veto power to the Freedom Caucus. Congressman, there are reports today that Republican leaders are considering a plan to eliminate the health care subsidies that are part of the Affordable Care Act in this upcoming budget deal, and that Democrats might support shutting the government down if that happens. What are your thoughts about that? 
I don't think they'll be connected. But you know, when the president threatens that, this is the 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 the, the subsidies that are essential to maintain uh, and start to improve the individual market. So basically, uh, the threat here is that we will, we President Trump and congressional Republicans, will take executive actions. Uh, that will destroy the possibility of people who are now getting health care under existing law from continuing to get it. And it kind of reminds me of that uh, thing that happened in Vietnam where one officer was quoted as saying, we we had to burn the village down in order to save it. You know, I I hope the president doesn't go there where it basically says, uh, I'm just going to do everything I can to uh, punish as many people as I can who are now dependent on the Affordable Care Act in order to get you to negotiate with me for what I want. It's, it's, it's a tactical decision uh, that's, that's quite destructive. By the and, way, I want to yes. go back on this. That I'm leading a letter that we're sending uh, uh, to Paul Ryan uh, saying that we Democrats will vote to support a clean debt ceiling. All right. So if, the, if we're going to give him the votes, we're to, uh, without condition, you, you put a clean debt ceiling bill on the floor, we're going to vote it because that's our, that's our job. We can't have the government shut down over this, uh, fights like on the debt ceiling. But if they put in provisions that are just poison pills, like we won't fund Planned Parenthood, things that are really extraneous, uh, then we're not going to be bullied into doing that. Good to know. Uh, let's turn to Allison Putney. Hi, Alice. Welcome to the program. My question is, we've heard from Trump that jobs, jobs, jobs is what he's after. And with his skinny budget, how many jobs in the whole country will be eliminated? Um, I don't have an answer to that question. I do know that it would have devastating consequences uh, uh, in Vermont and in uh, across the country. I mean, there'd be a lot of people losing jobs in scientific research. We'd lose a lot of jobs uh, in our Department of Environmental Conservation because the EPA budget is scheduled to be cut at least 20 percent, according to him. And a lot of folks who work in the state of Vermont, particularly on uh, our stream protection and Lake Champlain cleanup, a lot of those folks would lose their jobs because that federal funding would uh, would go away. So I don't have the specific number, but it definitely would have not just an impact on jobs, but an impact on important work everywhere from Lake Champlain cleanup to our national parks. Uh, right now, let's talk to Nick in Montpelier. I wanted to thank Congressman Welsh very much for doing this program and also for everything that you've done for Vermonters. It's all very much appreciated. Um, so what I wanted to ask you about today is President Trump um, earlier this year, signed an executive order saying that, I believe, uh, saying that for every new regulation that gets passed, he wants to uh, repeal two old regulations. Um, so it sounds like that's something that, you know, he really is looking forward to doing. And, President, I wanted to ask you, Congressman Welsh, what kind of regulatory reform you would support um, and what kinds of regulatory cuts you would not support. So. The, well, there's, that's, a, that's a really good question. Well, first of all, I, I would always support a, a top-to-bottom review of all existing regulations from the perspective of uh, are they helping achieve the stated goal, usually something about health or safety uh, or environmental protection. Uh, and regulations can be overdone. Uh, like, for instance, in Dodd-Frank, 
uh, I totally approve the regulations that are putting some breaks on the big banks from doing their uh, exotic uh, derivatives and collateralized debt obligations. But I don't think those regulations should apply to our smaller banks that don't do that financial activity. Uh, and, uh, and, and they're not a threat to the financial uh, system like the big banks were. So I'd want to give a lot of regulatory relief to our small banks. So I think regulations have to be uh, looked at carefully to see whether uh, they're doing the good that was intended or they're, uh, they, they, they need to be changed. And ideally, that would be the framework where I'd be willing to sit down with Republicans and go through those regulations and try to make them practical. But there are times when regulations are really good. I think like uh, the mileage standards where we're not micromanaging how the car companies are going to build cars that can get us over 50 miles a gallon. You know, they've got to do that. That's an engineering challenge. But you're saying that's got to be a goal uh, that all of them try to achieve in order to protect our, our environment. Or I'll give a couple of examples of regulations that have been repealed that I think really was bad. The clean power plan, you know, the companies were already in the process of getting off of coal and the president ripped that clean power plan up and uh, that's going to mean much more pollution in the atmosphere. There was another a stream protection plan. A lot of mining companies were just uh, doing surface mining and dumping all their sludge in the streams and that creates uh, dirty water and in fact dangerous water that um, produce health consequences. Uh, you know, that stream protection plan I think was really important. So I think regulation by regulation we look at them and it shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all. Congressman, we got this message from uh, Jeff in Northfield who wanted to know, is Congress as dysfunctional as it seems? Is it as bad as we think it is? Well, you know, in all candor, uh, Congress uh, is failing to do its job. Uh, there's a lot of good people there, and, and a lot of my Republican colleagues are as frustrated about how we're not making decisions and moving forward that we need to be. The job of Congress should be to try to pass policies uh, that help people back home be successful doing their work. And when Congress is not even passing a budget, uh, when Congress instead of facing into a challenge like climate change, is spending time denying that it even exists. Uh, when Congress stands idly by when we're engaged in military activity and doesn't step up to assert its constitutional responsibility to debate an authorization for the use of military force, Congress doesn't have much to brag about. Now, I think there's a couple of forces outside that have really been negative and powerful. One is uh, Citizens United has really just opened the floodgates of money so that any billionaire, and it could be a liberal or a conservative, they get advisors, they look over the, uh, the lay of the land and they think, hey, we can get this Senate seat or we can get this House seat. They don't care about Vermont. They don't care about Oklahoma. They just care about their own agenda. We've got to change Citizens United. And the second thing is I think gerrymandering is a brutal problem. And you've got these districts that are designed by computer uh, for the benefit of the politicians rather than the voters. I think we ought to have nonpartisan uh, commissions deciding on the boundaries of congressional districts. That's the only way you're going to get members in ele elected who are motivated to compromise, uh, not just uh, ideological purity. But how likely is that to happen? It's not going to happen now. It's going to take really uh, – the, the Supreme Court is so crucial because that's where we could change Citizens United. That was a 5-4 decision 
It's just one more reason why citizen that's so important. And the gerrymandering in the current Congress, it won't happen. But I think more and more people are really frustrated that we don't have the ability or not willing to to compromise, you know, to work across the aisle, to listen to the other point of view, and to make two steps forward instead of three steps back or just be stalled. So I do think that's going to take uh, more activity on the part of the citizens just saying they want this Congress, they want Congress to work, but we're not there uh, yet. Is that something that's happening in the state of California? It is, yeah. California uh, did it. Iowa's done it. Uh, in California did it. They have a different uh, – uh, 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 and I think it's been helpful because whether you get a Republican or Democrat in that district, uh, they've got a top two primary. But what happens is that the person that gets elected – and it can be, as I say, a Republican or Democrat. They have to be responsible to a voting population that cuts across everything from the Freedom Caucus to, say, the progressives. So they, they've, they've got to be willing to work – and listen to a broader range of views than if you've got this tailor-made district for the extreme right or the extreme left. Well, there's certainly a lot of issues for us to follow in Congress in the coming weeks. Congressman Peter Welch, many thanks for taking the time to be on the program today. Um, thank you and to all your listeners and callers.